You're listening to the weekly message at Mosaic Church. For more information or to talk about your own life in Christ, email info at mosaicchurchevans.org. If you'd like to support our ministry, visit our website at mosaicchurchevans.org. Thanks for listening. And now, this week's message. belongs to us and we 
get to decide how to live this. So on Christmas Day last year, I got an email from someone in our community who actually remembered that Christmas belongs to us and comes with a responsibility to live it faithfully. And, and here's what she wrote to me. She wrote, I hope you all having an incredible Christmas Day. Today, my family and I are discussing the possibility of creating our own Christmas tradition. For as long as I can remember, this time of year has been a source of anxiety, sorrow, guilt, and the longing for it to be something more, something else, something joyful. So I have raged against it in my spirit, dug my heels in against it, and I found every excuse to avoid caring at Christmas. But I will no longer be angry for the at the season for the joy I failed to find for myself. Christmas does not owe me anything. You need to write that down. And actually, that's why we chose the song that we chose that will sort of walk us through this season, the one we just sing, because, you know, I just love that line in that song, Jesus, you don't owe me anything. That's what, it comes to some of us like a revelation. Jesus doesn't actually owe us anything. Jesus has given and given and given. He doesn't actually owe us anything. And Christmas, the season, doesn't owe us a feeling or a, or, or a gathering or anything, actually. So this person goes on, she writes, Today it finally occurred to me that Christmas can be for us whatever we choose it to be. Old things have passed away. I have to let them die. And out of the ashes will be born a new thing, a God-honoring thing, a loving expression of the gift that is Jesus, a loving expression of all that redemption is in all its beauty and glory for Jesus. That one line, that Christmas doesn't owe me a thing, that that got me last Christmas Day when I read this email for the first time. It was the feeling I've been having all season last year. A feeling like, wait, we're the ones this holiday is for, so why does it come to so many of us as a stressor? And is that how we want to honor our Emmanuel? And of course, last Christmas we had no idea what this Christmas would be like. If we thought last Christmas was stressful, well, we'd give a lot to have this last Christmas back. Amen? <laughs> So this is going to be a very different Christmas season with questions swirling again about gatherings and even family gatherings. Given all that, what do we owe the world? What is manageable for people who are already stretched emotionally and likely financially? Do we attempt all our usual stuff or do we consider and get intentional about what will be best for us, uh, for our own mental and emotional health, and especially for our own spiritual health, as well as that of our families and our community. So those are the questions I'm praying through. As your pastor, I'm praying through these questions. Because I want you to be able to live this season, not just safely, but spiritually. So what I propose is that we spend this month walking through the Christmas story as it's told in Luke here on Sunday mornings, and we're also giving you a devotional guide that you can click into. If you are on our, um, on our mailing list, then you got your first entry this morning, and Taylor Williams was the person who wrote that first entry. Sundays will be especially for our epic uh, friends, our, our epic students. But every day during the Christmas season, you'll get um, a devotional in your inbox. If you aren't part of our mailing list, you can either write and ask us to put you there, or you can find it on our Mosaic Church Evans Facebook page. So we'll keep these questions in mind as we walk through this devotional. 
what exactly do I owe my family this, this Christmas? What do I owe my community? What do I owe myself? And what do I owe uh, Jesus, especially? What do I owe Jesus? And today we're asking that first question. What do I owe this community? What do I owe this community? So I haven't thought about that, but before we get there, let's get into the story. Luke chapter 1, beginning with verse 5. Luke chapter 1, beginning with verse 5. Let's look at this together. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest who belonged to the priest, uh, Zechariah, a priest named Zechariah, who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. This couple, both of them were from the line of Aaron, which is a priestly line. To have two people in the same household, both from the same lineage, is sort of like royalty, spiritual royalty. It set them apart. The story says they were both righteous, and that also set them apart. You and I both know there is a difference between being a priest and being a righteous priest. (laughs) Elizabeth and Zechariah took their call to the priesthood seriously. They quietly, faithfully followed God out of a pure and obedient heart. And actually, that's the first principle I find in this story, that God uses good hearts. God uses faithful people. Not people who just go through the motions, but faithful people. And Zechariah and Elizabeth's child, John, will take faith to yet another level. I've often wondered... If John the Baptist knew, I mean, if he really knew that he was the guy that they talk about in Isaiah, you know, is he, did he get it? When, when, did he really see himself as the manifestation of Isaiah's prophecy? Or was he just a guy wearing sackcloth who lived in the woods and ate bugs because it was who he was? Did he know what he was prophesying when he called people to repentance? Did he know he was preparing the way for Jesus? Or was he just doing the thing he knew how to do because that's who he was at the very core of his being? Were all these people, I mean, Zechariah and Elizabeth and John, really as bright as all that? Or were they just faithfully doing what they knew at the time they were given to do it with no real idea of where it might lead? That witness teaches me, their witness, Zechariah and Elizabeth and John, tells me that maybe my job is to stop figuring out the line from A to B and just do the thing I know I'm supposed to do. Lately, in every message, there's been a line where I sit back and I go, oh my goodness, that line is for me. And I just told you the line that's for me. Just do the thing that's been given me to do. I mean, I think in this season, especially as a pastor, it's like, I don't even know what to do anymore because the stuff we were told to do, the stuff we were taught to do, isn't the stuff we're doing right now. And when I got to this line just this week, when I came back to this line, just do the thing I know I'm supposed to do, I sat back in my chair and I'm like, okay, I get it. Just out of my own personality, out of my own calling, just do the thing I know I'm supposed to do. Whether that's loving people the way I love people, or, uh, or or preaching the way I preach, or ministering in the lives the way I minister in the lives, or just being patient with people the way I am patient with people, not the way somebody else is patient with people, but the way I am, or you know, whatever it is, 
I'm wondering what that is for you. Just do the thing that you've been called to do. Just do the thing that's in you to do. And, listen, and learn the voice of God. That's huge. That's a huge part. Because you won't know what it is that you're called to do if you don't know how to hear the voice of God. Really learn it. That was, we just read from Moses' story. That was the thing Moses got. Learn the voice of God. Really learn it. And seek faith. More faith. Lord, give me more faith. Because my faith is such a remarkable gift from the Lord. It is my connection back to the Father. It's my lifeline and my treasure and the cord that channels the power. In fact, my faith is the channel. So last week I gave you a breath prayer and challenged you to pray it. Infuse me, Holy Spirit, with joy. This week I want to give you another breath prayer. Infuse me, Father, with faith. That's a prayer you can pray every single day. Just ask for more faith. Infuse me, Father, with faith. And and you you can pray that every day this month. And especially on the days when you don't know how it will all play out. Infuse me, Father, with faith. And I want you to listen to, there's something else in this passage that gets our attention because it reminds us of just how intricately involved and faith with, with, with faithful hearts that God can be. It's in their names. Zechariah means Jehovah or God remembers. Elizabeth means oath of God. So when Zechariah married Elizabeth, they became Jehovah remembers his oath, or God remembers his promises. That's powerful, isn't it? This couple is sort of a walking prophecy for Israel, because Israel was desperately watching and waiting for God's promised Messiah, but over 400 years, up to the time of Zechariah and Elizabeth, God had been really quiet. Not, not one prophetic word in 400 years, at least not one published prophetic word. And after a while, that begins to feel like rejection, like they've been forgotten, like maybe God had changed his mind on them. Like, like maybe he'd gone back on his promise. But here in this couple, Zechariah and Elizabeth, God makes a statement for those who are spiritually sensitive enough to pick it up. He, he, he announces that he has not forgotten, he has not rejected his people. God keeps his promises. You should write that down. God keeps his promises. That's an eternal word. And maybe one you need to hear this morning if you feel like God has forgotten you or has forgotten us or has changed his mind about humanity. Go back to Jeremiah 29:11. This is a word from God spoken to the people of Israel after they've been sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. That would be like somebody uh, evicting you from your house and sending you to, I don't know, New Jersey or someplace. God tells them how to make the best of it. Because even though it might not be the best situation, God will be with them and he will eventually bring them back to Jerusalem. He won't forget them. He tells them, he tells them in Jeremiah 29, 11, I know the plans I have for you, and they are plans not to harm you, but to give you a future with hope. We want to grab that verse, most of us, and put it in a fortune cookie and just paste it over whatever in our life is going where you want it to, 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 to you know, paste it over every whim and hope we have. But that was God's word for the Israelites. 
know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you a future and a hope, because you are in exile right now. I need you to keep hope alive. It served a specific purpose in keeping them encouraged during their exile, but it does teach us something. Even though it was for specific people at a specific time, it teaches us something too. It tells us, listen to me, it teaches us that God works from a plan. That's what's right in front of us. That was God's word for the Israelites, but I believe it's also God's word. It's an eternal word. It's God's word. <laughs> it means it's a word for us too, because God does work from a plan. He didn't just he didn't create you and then wonder what might you know you might be good for. There's no if there was no plan for your life, you would not exist. You probably need to hear that right now. If there was no plan for your life, you would not exist. God is not going to abandon you now. But here's the promise. From the moment God dreamed you, He has had a plan for you. A preferred future. A hopeful future. Not to harm you, but to give you a future with hope. And that word extends to all God's people. In fact, it begins there. He has plans for us, and nothing can separate us from that. Romans 8 tells us that God is for us. Paul teaches us that nothing in all creation is able to separate us from the love that God has for us. And you might be saying, well, that's fine and good, but most of what I was hoping for has been shot to smithereens this year. <laughs> Now I don't know where all this is headed. I don't know what my life will be on the other side of it, or even when the other side will get here. Oh, I saw the most painful post yesterday by a ministry leader, a nationally known ministry leader, who just, just kind of tossed this word out over pastors. He said, you know, I think what we're experiencing among a lot of pastors is not burnout, but a loss of will to do ministry. That doesn't just extend to pastors. It may extend to many of you who have been plowing a field for a long time, and this year you just sort of lost your will to do it. That's fair enough. But I want you to hear that God does not make a promise that God will not keep. God has not left us here to figure out this season alone. So in John chapter 17, Jesus is praying for his friends. He prays for the ones who are with him when he walked the earth. But then he says, and I want you to hear this. He says, I don't want to just pray only for them. I also pray for all those who believe in me through this message. And then Jesus goes on to say that what he has been praying for is that anyone who believes will be brought to completeness. You hear that? To me, that's sort of an astonishing thought that Jesus is not just praying that I believe, but that, that I will be brought to completeness, that God's plans for me will be fulfilled. And God is praying, Jesus is praying, that we will be in perfect union with God and with his plan. So Romans 8 says basically the same thing, that the Holy Spirit prays for us, even when we don't know how to pray for ourselves. So I want you to just gather all that up together. There's a point here. 
what Jeremiah and John and Paul and Jesus have all said, it adds up to this one amazing promise that God, with all he has, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is for us. He created us with a good purpose in mind. He has a plan for us, and he has not forgotten that plan, and he has not given up on us. Jesus is still praying for us. I mean, stop and contemplate that right now, right now at the right hand of God the Father, Jesus the Son is praying for you. He has not stopped praying for you. So what can you do for your faith community this month? And for this community, whether you are in person in worship or not, what can you do to, to unite yourself in a meaningful, spiritual way with your faith community? I would say this, be present in faith. Be present in faith. Believing that because God is for us, we can trust the plan, even if it is not on our timeline. timeline. Be present as God is. Be for the community as God is. That's what Elizabeth and Zechariah discovered. You see, up at this point, when we meet them in Luke, they've been unable to have children. They're in their 60s and childless. Looks for all the world like God has forgotten them. But he hasn't. Look at verses 8 and 9. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty, Zechariah was serving as priest before God. He was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. There were thousands of priests uh, who served the temple in Jerusalem. The chances of getting chosen to go into the holy place to burn incense on the altar were pretty slim. But on this day, Zechariah was chosen. And while he was in there, Verses 11 and 12 says this, An angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. It is an unnerving thing to go into the holy place. (laughs) He only did it once. And just to make it even more intimidating, when a priest went into the holy place to do this incense thing, they tied a cord to his leg so that if he died, they could drag him out. I ought to, you know, give you a sense of your own mortality. The whole experience was pretty intimidating, but still it strikes me as sort of ironic, uh, ironic that Zechariah, in this holy place, very clear, very clear on the fact that this was a big deal, that he was going into the place where the presence was most palpable. He was startled, spooked by the presence of an angel. While he's in the holy place, as if he's surprised to find something spiritual in there. Makes me ask myself how often I come into this place or into the place of worship, into the time of worship without any expectation that something spiritual might happen. Do you come into this place expecting? Are you fully present? Imagine what would happen if we all came expecting Christ to show up. This week I was playing around with a COVID liturgy. I was thinking, you know, something like, um, 
for the times we played word with friends and folded our laundry while we watched church online. God in your mercy, please forgive us. <laughs> there are times we have multitasked our way through holy moments, Lord in your mercy. Please forgive us. You know, one of the hidden blessings of COVID is that since we've begun meeting in person again, the spirit in this room has been very special and very sweet. Many fewer people, but what a sweet spirit in this place. Folks who show up to the show up believing God is here, you guys are fully present. One of the commitments that we on the ministry team have, and, and leadership have made is that we will not let go of that sweet spirit when we all get back to normal. It's our commitment that when people walk in here, they come in to worship. I realize if you're online, that's hard. But man, now is the time to begin to practice the presence of God in worship. pandemic eases off, in-person worship returns, I want you to be ready spiritually, to give yourself fully to this time, this time of worship. How are you doing that right now? How are you giving yourself fully to worship? And I wonder actually if the online liturgy needs to be something like Ten minutes before I sit down to watch the, to, 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 you know, to, to do church online, I will get my coffee and I'll go to the restroom and I'll turn off everything else and I will, uh, and I'll let my family know if they're not in the room with me that this is what I'll be doing for the next hour and 15 minutes. I will make myself fully present to the God who longs to show me his glory. Is that a commitment you could make? Reverent to be present. So I want you to listen to the conversation between Zechariah and, and Gabriel, the angel of the Lord. Um, this is this is Luke uh, chapter one. We're going to start with verse thirteen, and we're going to skip around just a little bit. So just follow me. We're going to go from thirteen to eighteen, skipping a little bit. The angel said to him, "Do not be afraid, Zechariah. He, remember, he's in the holy of holies right now." Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you are to give him the name John. And I want you to remember this, that John means God is gracious. Remember that. Verse 14, he will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And then verse 18, Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man, and my wife is well along in years, which is not the right answer, evidently. Um, I never read this passage without laughing at Gabriel, but I'm not sure Gabriel has a great sense of humor. <laughs> Gabriel is like, you are asking an angel how a miracle is possible. Think what you're doing here, Zechariah. <laughs> you have to wonder if there's some bitterness in Zechariah's first response. You know, I'm I'm wondering how this is possible. I'm old. My wife is well along in years, too. Why are you just showing up now? 
You know he wasn't just honestly trying to understand because of the way the angel responded. Evidently, for Gabriel, this is like giving someone a gift and then having them take it back. And as we say at Mosaic, often, when God gives you a gift, what? You take it. That's right. So the angel was a little miffed when Zechariah didn't seem excited. So look at verses 19 and 20. The angel said to him, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens, because you didn't believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. How does Gabriel know? Because God keeps his promises. By striking him unable to speak, Gabriel has just given Zechariah the equivalent of about nine months to contemplate the nature of God. <laughs> God in his wisdom and goodness wants Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, the one who will announce Jesus coming, to know that he knows that God is good, that God is for us, and that God keeps his promises, that God wants not just this man's obedience, he wants this man's heart. Same chapter, a few verses later, the angel Gabriel visits a young woman named, uh, named Mary. And he tells her also she's going to have a baby. And she also responds a lot like Zechariah. How can this be since I'm a virgin? So what's the difference between Zechariah and Mary? Well, the difference is she's a 14-year-old girl, not a 60-year-old priest. She really doesn't know how it happens with angels. So Gabriel explains to her, even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. This is chapter 1, verse 36. And she who was said to be barren is in her sixth month. For nothing, nothing is impossible with God. And Mary takes that truth at face value and she runs with it. She says, well then, let it happen like God wants it to happen. I wonder what choice in your life needs that kind of response. Well, let it happen like God wants it to happen. Let me just do the thing I'm meant to do. And let it happen the way God wants it to happen. Where do you need to lean into faith? Instead of arguing, where do you need to trust God? John Piper says this. He says, it is possible to demand too much evidence before you believe God's promises. That's a good word. You should write that down. It is possible to demand too much evidence before you believe God's promises. He's not talking about being foolish. He's talking about the reasonable expectation that an all-powerful God can and will do the humanly impossible. Do you believe that with God nothing is impossible? That if you show up, he will. I want you to write that down, first person. If I show up, God will. If I show up, God will. All right, look at verses 23 to 25. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. 
In these days, he has shown favor and has taken away my disgrace among the people. Underline that word, disgrace. He has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. That is a powerful principle for us. Their whole story happens like it happens so Elizabeth can get this point, that God heals disgrace. Write that down. God heals disgrace. Do you remember what John's name means? John means God is gracious. And the angel is the one who told them to name him this. God gives grace that heals in us all those moments we lived without grace, outside the purposes of God. God heals in us all those moments we lived in shame, unable to feel the grace, the love, the care, the provision of God. Everything that happened to Elizabeth and Zechariah happened so God's Messiah could bring into the world this great news that God heals disgrace. Come on, people. I love the way Chanda Pierce teaches the creation story, particularly on this point. You've heard me do it before, but I'm going to do it again because it's so good. Chanda talks about how in the story of Adam and Eve, before they sinned or ever talked to the serpent, the Bible says they were naked and unashamed. There was no sense of judgment or condemnation, no fear of rejection, no shame. Then the temptation of Satan to be something that they were not. And then the terrible fall from grace. And that's when a human first saw himself or herself as somehow not good enough. And that's why they put clothes on. They're just trying to hide behind something to to compensate or overcompensate. It must have broken the father's heart to see his beautiful children experience such shame, such disgrace. God came looking for them. And since they were covered, he asked, where are you? And they said to to God, we hid ourselves. We were afraid because we were naked. And so we hid. And God said, and you could just hear the grief in his question, who told you you were naked? Who told you you had something to be ashamed of? Who spoke that word into your life? Because that word is a lie. That word is the very word our Jesus has come to heal. He came to heal that word of disgrace, that lie that someone along the way has most certainly spoken into every one of our lives to make us feel ashamed. That lie that because you were childless, you're somehow second class, or because you're broke, you're worthless, or because you have a past, a past you have no future. That lie that makes us over-function and overthink and overcompensate when all that is being asked of us is that we simply be present to the God who is present to us. To be present to His plans. To simply be. That's enough. You know, Zechariah was given an incredible uh, privilege over nine months. He was given the privilege of learning how to simply be in the presence of God. 
long has it been for us since March 13th, 15th was the first Sunday we were off? About nine months. We've not yet learned in this exile season how to simply be. Well, Advent would be a great time for you to learn that. To be present to his plans, to be present to his purposes, to be present to him. When Shiloh was born in Zechariah, Elizabeth, remember then, God remembers his child. Zechariah and Elizabeth named him. They were directed to name him John. God is full of grace. And when they named him that, God is full of grace, John got baptized. And that word will give you your voice as well. Grace. That word. Grace will give you back your voice too. Do you remember? Go all the way back to Moses, show me your glory, and then God passed by Moses and said, I am full of grace, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. It's the word that allows us to live, trusting that it is God's work, not this season, the direction of the world, the unanswered questions, all the stuff, to the faithful person, all of it begins with this truth. It is God's work, not mine. When I show up, He will. We are most present when we are present to that truth, with that attitude. I don't have to control my way through Christmas. <laughs> Praise Jesus. I can just be present. I don't have to have all the answers. I can just be present. I love the question that Taylor Williams left us with in today's devotional, the first one for Advent. How will you be present to what God is doing in this season? How will you be present to what God is doing in this season? What if we decide to spend less time lamenting the people we cannot be physically present with and more time rejoicing in the opportunity to be present to the one who is present to us? Thanks for taking the time to listen to our message. If you live in the area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you. Visit us or check out our website at mosaicchurchevans.org for more information. May God bless your day.